Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. We're here again in the series of experiments that have changed the fire science. I wonder if name Rune Hammer rings a bell for you. If you're someone dealing with uh, road tunnels or fire safety of tunnels in general, I guess that's the case. If not, please let me take you to the world of probably biggest and most important tunnel experiments done in the last 20, 30 years. Experiments that have really changed the way how we design road tunnels. It has been a very bold series of uh, research done in a very specific state in Europe after a series of really large fires with many fatalities. As I've read in, in some of the papers, the European citizens have lost the trust in the European tunneling network and many, many advances have been done at that point. And one of these advances has been done by SP in Sweden, now known as RISE, by a group of Professor Heike Ingesen, and uh, an important figure in that, also Dr. Anders Lunemark. Both of them are my today's guests, and they take me to their times at Runehammer, explain how the research has been done, what were the challenges, what were the findings what were their assumptions and how well they were met. Actually, it's, it's pretty fantastic. I'm going to spoil it a little bit. They've focused on, on finding one answer on what is the heat release rate of a fire in a tunnel. Build the whole experiment around that, done everything to figure out that number reliably in, for multiple scenarios, figure out what's the worst outcome. And once they achieved it, they've, implemented that, or the society implemented their findings into standards codes, really what they found out during these experiments, we are literally using on every single tunnel. That's the type of impact I think we should be seeking in fire science, you know, making one really good experiment that truly makes an impact, that truly changes something we can call the paradigm of the, of the fire safety design. Uh, and that's what these guys achieved. And this is why they are here now to talk about an experiment that really changed fire science. In a world where more publications are coming every year than ever before, in a world where vogue research is published for impact factors and citations, this type of research that truly makes an impact and changes the discipline is something we should seek. And I'm super happy to talk about it with Hoiko and Anders. So yeah, that, that's absolutely enough. Let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host. This podcast is produced in partnership with OFR Consultants, a multi-award winning UK-based fire and risk consultancy. OFR are supporting a number of PhDs at the universities around the UK, including Edinburgh and Sheffield. And the one I would like to highlight today is the opportunity at the Fire Safety Engineering Group at the University of Greenwich. This PhD is about how can we harness the power of BIM in our engineering practice. You may recall episode 62 about BIM. It seems like a promising, a useful tool and any development in that is much welcome for the fire community. 
PhD will use computational tools like uh, fire models and evacuation tools and will examine the data exchange requirements for them to be used together in one digital workflow employing BIM. If you would like to participate in this fully funded PhD bursary, please check the episode show notes. You can find there more information, a link to the application. Important thing is the date. It's closing on 28th February 2023. So yeah, please check it out. And now back to the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Fire Science Show. Another episode on experiments that have changed the fire science. And boy, this this one really did. Uh, today, I have with me Professor Hoike Ingerson from RISE. Hello, Hoike. Hi. And uh, Dr. Anders Lundemark from, from RISE, who also participated. Hello, Anders. Great to have you here. Good morning. Thank you. And you guys, uh, you've set a fire 20 years ago, and it seems to be still burning. <laughs> you have done the famous Runhammer tunnel experiments, or you were part of the larger consortium that, that has done these experiments. So... I know that it changed the fire science because I'm dealing with tunnel fire safety and tunnel engineering, and this research just keeps popping back because it's one of the best data points we have collected as fire engineers. I really wonder the history of this program, what what happened and how it happened. So maybe let's let's discuss why the experiments were needed, why you have went to an old tunnel in Norway to do these massive experiments and what were the like the chain of events that, that led to this program? Yeah, I can start and thank you for this nice introduction. And uh, it's really, uh, it was in the late uh, 90s, early 2000, when we had all these uh, large tunnel fires incidents. And, and uh, in 96, we had the Eurotunnel and we had then Mont Blanc, Tauern and St. Gotthard all the, in a very sequential uh, mm. period. And, and I was thinking about uh, all these fires involved HCVs or heavy good vehicles or semi-trailers with ordinary hazardous goods. And, and we uh, knew from experience of doing fire research on warehouses with uh, ordinary commodities that, of course, these fires can be quite large. But at that time, people were talking about 20, 30 megawatt design fires. I felt it, it must be higher than that. And, and, and already in 93, there was a test in, in the Eureka program, which was also done in Norway, where they measured for the Eurotunnel project, heat release rate up to 120 megawatt in ordinary uh, semi-trailer with a uh, ordinary goods of uh, furniture of two tons. And, and that also somehow confirmed for me that we need to do something to show people that 2030 megawatt as a design fire for a truck, uh, a single burning truck, was maybe too low. So, and these uh, fires were very much in discussion, of course. And, and it was not single burning vehicle; it was like multiple. It was 10, 15 HCVs involved. Mm. So. Uh, estimation showed me clearly that this was uh, something here, wrong here. So we were in contact with Christian Opsa at Sintef uh, uh, in Trondheim, Sintef Fire Research Lab. And he told me about a, a large-scale tunnel in Ondalsnes and, and thought, oh, that's interesting. We, maybe we should do a fire test there. And somehow that was the starting point. And, and then I went to my manager and said, hey, I want to do a full-scale test in, in Runehammer Tunnel. Is, is it okay? 
Yeah, as long as you find some money. And we started to find money in Sweden and we got actually up to 350,000 euros, if I recall. And uh, and my manager said, uh, okay, go ahead, but you need to find some partners because you have not a complete budget for this. I think you need at least uh, half a million. <laughs> so, so I... I was at that part in, involved in a project, European project called Upton. And I, I asked mm-hmm. the management, can we use our part in the uh, Upton project to, to somehow co-financing these tests? And, and they said, yes, of course, that's interesting. And you should also add some partners here also. And uh, we felt, okay, TNO in Netherlands, that's excellent partner. And, and also Sintef in Norway, we're excellent partners. So they were also part of Upton. So so that's how we linked into the Upton project. And we're able to actually perform this in 2003. And mm. at that time, there was a young researcher called Anders Lönnemark. He was... Uh, <laughs> I felt I could not do this alone and we needed help and that's how uh, Anders became involved and, and really did a major impact on, on the performance of this test. How did uh, the tunnel fire safety field feel after all this? Because it, it was like an age of really huge fires in tunnels, like one after another, like Gotthard Channel, uh, Mont Blanc, there was King's Cross uh, fire not uh, not the road tunnel, but also involving uh, underground infrastructure. In in the book, after the the proceedings of the symposium, after the, the experiments, there's a quote uh, that says that that people lost faith in Europe, European transport network. Did you also feel this political necessity to perform this test, or was it just purely engineering driven? We need a new design fire. I can respond to that because I, I recall I was purely driven by the the knowledge of, I knew there was something wrong in the numbers uh, and also the science because we had been doing a lot of model scale testing and we could see this really clearly and that was really the the background to do this. Uh, We wanted to some kind of validation in full scale tests. So it was more science driven, curious driven than any political uh, question, uh, at least concerning me. Fantastic. And when you've entered the research, was the question of heat release rate the main uh, research gap that you had? Or were there like immediately things, okay, we also need this and this and this, or or you were just focused on the size of the fire? Yes, the heat release rate was the main driving force that that, uh, in most standards, they say uh, this 20 to 30 megawatts is the maximum. And Hoeker very confirmly believed that, that this was much higher. And uh, this was, of course, the starting point from my participation of this research. But we also looked at other things uh, like uh, the high temperatures and risk for fire spread and uh, also the possibilities for the fire fighters to fight such large uh, fires, but all came back to this uh, gap between the thought of the maximum heat release rate and what we thought was the, the actual case. Mm. And then, of course, a scientific part of this was also how to measure this in a, in a correct way in a tunnel with such a large uh, fire and uh, all the practical things about just the measuring the heat release uh, rates. And challenge was also, of course, that we wanted to have different levels of the heat release rate. 
So we had looked at different transport companies here in, in Sweden, what kind of uh, mixtures of materials we can see there, and uh, especially then the mixtures of uh, cellulosic material and plastics, uh, that we find out that, then that approximately 20% uh, plastics was quite common. And then we tried to arrange four tests with different types of those those, that's the same percentage, but different type of, of mixtures and uh, masses. So we reached uh, different levels of maximum heat release rates, a lot based on how the, these were sort of ordered and uh, set the set, how the, the setup looked like. Then, of course, very big driving force was uh, that we thought, okay, we are convinced that, that this is the case. The maximum is much higher than that, what the standards say, but we have to show it. We really have to show it with an experiments. Modeling will not be enough here. We need to show this in a real experiment. I hear that very often in the fire science that something is obvious, but uh, please give me a citation for that. And it doesn't exist. There is, uh, there's many obvious statements that, that uh, require experimental proof because sometimes when you go into, into arguments with authorities or, or some, you know, deciding parties, uh, for them, uh, your say as a scientist is, is insufficient. They want a uh, hardcore proof. Mm, here, a uh, really solid proof was uh, obtained. I've uh, read that the, the compositions of your fuels were, there were four, thousand, four tests done. Uh, three of them had some sort of wood pallets in different numbers. The first one was mainly wood pallets and some plastic materials. The second was uh, half pallets, half mattresses. The third was like real furniture. I guess it was Swedish furniture. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> that's, that's my that's my guess. And uh, the fourth one was uh, mainly um, plastic cups. So so that's that's a very interesting um, choice of materials. You said that it it was driven by urge to have different heat release rates. But uh, I wonder, you were venturing literally into unknown. So. How were you designing these fuel sources, these experiments, and, and how, how did you even choose the, the number of four? Well, as I said, we want to have different levels, but we also wanted them to burn a bit differently. <laughs> and uh, our main thought was that, okay, wood, wooden pallets, is, we have the knowledge of wooden pallets. They are, it's an actual case that you see that in transportation, even if these were, were piles of pallets. But we also thought we need to have uh, plastics and what is better than to, to arrange plastic pallets that have the same sizes and we just mix in, mix them in, in the correct mixture ratio. So that was the starting point. Uh, and then we wanted something to burn a little bit differently. And we also saw that, okay, mattresses is a different type of, of material with this being soft and it has also a different chemical composition. Was the reason to have these pieces of mattresses with, you know, the same size of the wooden pallets. Then it was the case of stability in that case, that they are not as solid. So therefore we had to arrange some practical things around this setup that we use for all the tests with some nets that it, does, it didn't fall down. But the main thing was to have these different types of material mattresses that we thought was quite common and useful for us. The plastic cups is actually standardized goods mm -hmm. that we use for other testing. So we had knowledge of how they burn, uh, what kind of smoke it produces, uh, about the heat release rate and other things. So that was also then a guess that 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 would be very suitable. Then we came up with a, it would be very nice to have something that was real commodities, and uh, yeah. therefore we had this uh, test with 
furnitures and we tried them to have uh, as good mixture as possible with the similarities to the others. But of course, these was different in some cases. There was very solid packages with, with uh, pieces of furniture and with, while others were more porous mm-hmm. and open, so to say, in their structure. So, but uh, it turned out very well, I think. Because of your famous pictures of, of these palettes uh, burning in, in this massive configuration, now whenever I see a, a truck with palettes on the road, I'm, I'm immediately urged to take a picture of it and, uh, and switch it somewhere. I've seen three in my life uh, already on Polish <laughs> roads. It's like a unicorn. And I guess the drivers are always confused why someone is taking a picture of this, uh, this uh, seemingly uninteresting truck. Um, Heike, you've mentioned uh, your experience with ordinary hazards, and as as you were saying that, uh, it, it clicked in my, in my mind. I I remember your papers from like '95, where you were doing like first uh, numerical simulations of natural ventilators. So it's fascinating how a person jumps from one field to another to to completely change that another field with the experience from the previous one. I wondered uh, at that time, 2003 or even before, when you were planning, you've Put a big source of fire, the, this, these palettes, this, all the materials that Anders was talking. But you, you had to have an, and some sort of idea how the fire will develop. And it was a forced flow experiment. So was at that point any expertise in how this forced flow will change the fire behavior? Like, what were you expecting uh, from these fires? And did it go like uh, in a different way than 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 you expected? Yeah, uh, I call uh, when you are saying it. Uh, of course, this n- numerical simulation of fire events. Of course, uh, that, yeah. that, that's a part of my. T- but my PhD is on uh, rack storage fires, which is a vertical mm-hmm. piled commodities, and mm-hmm. and uh, by accident, really, I came into the tunnel world and, and I, I just saw the commodities on, on the trailers. That was just a horizontal commodity in a blowing situation. You know, it's like vertical fire spread is governed by the, the aided flow of, of flames and so on. But in tunnels, when you have forced ventilation, you create a situation where, you, you know, the flames uh, follow the, the commodity, like in a, in a where it's fire. So there's a similarity there. But uh, anyway, that experience, of course, I took with me. And I, I knew that what parameters were governing the fire spread and, and the rate of heat release rate. But uh, I had also been doing a lot of model scale testing, both in, in warehouse fires, and, and then I mm. took that into the tunnel world. And, and actually, uh, these tests in, in Runemar test are really based on model scale testing the design that we, we did test in 2002 in model scale to evaluate uh, what and how large fires what situation they create in tunnels, like the, the mm-hmm. back layering, critical velocity, radiation temperatures, smoke spread, and so on. And all that, we took that with us to the Runehammer experience, how to measure the heat rates, what techniques should we use, and so on. We had experienced that from model skill tests. And then we had, of course, what's really made the case for us in, in the Runehammer, and, and where Anders was highly involved, is planning the intermediate size uh, fire laboratory test where we piled up when we had decided after the survey that's the type of goods we will use. We piled it up and took one row of the 
commodity in a truck. It was like 10 rows of uh, piles, and we put that under our hood, uh, large fire collector, and measured the heat release mm. rate. And from that, we were able to predict what should be the uh, heat release rates. And, and that was really a very accurate prediction. And, and that is presented in the conference after the fire tests in, in 2003. That prediction, and, and, uh, and this was a part of that, and, and what was really amazing how well we predicted it in advance, the heat release rates. Because of, mm. of this experience with model-scale tests, intermediate-sized tests, and then finally the, the full-scale tests. I think this is a very important parameter that you prepare large-scale tests in such a way. I guess uh, the budget was also very large, so you really want to get the most bang of your euro <laughs> as you can. Uh, if you, if you can burn it one, just a few times, you don't want to go unprepared. From your memory, what, what was the number one like technical challenge related to the program? Like what, what made you sleep the least? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had a lot of uh, discussion with different people. And, but number one, I would say the protection of the tunnel, because this was a, 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 a bonded uh, tunnel with no fire protection at all. It was just a rock tunnel. Mm -hmm. And uh, thankfully, through the uh, Upton project, we were able to get in contact with Promat International, another Netherlands company uh, called Gerko, who, who helped us to fit the Promat boards into the tunnel because Promat boards are not mm -hmm. usually used in this type of tunnel. But we found a solution and they sponsored this really. So we... we we're luckily wow. to, to get that uh, help and, and for uh, the test was really the only possibility to do because we would never uh, be able to do that. And we were actually in, in contact with the Norwegian admi road administration who loaned us the tunnel in, in sense. They didn't require any payment for being there. They, they gave us the opportunity to do this and, and all the environmental uh, parts of it uh, was uh, dealt with with them. So we are very thankful mm -hmm. for, for that as well. But the, the most challenging was the protection, also measuring the heat release rate uh, where we and we had to, there was no fans in, in the tunnel, so we had to get a mobile fans. So we, we got uh -huh. a German company called BIG and we had two large industrial mobile fans for industrial uh, buildings and they worked perfectly. They could give us over three meters per second in the tunnel. So we were thankful for that. But uh, otherwise there was nothing there. I mean, <laughs> it was just a pure, pure, and uh, Anders can tell you more about that uh, because uh, they really, it was, it was a hard time. So you were not allowed to collapse the tunnel? We were not allowed to collapse the tunnel and we made an agreement with the Norwegian administration that uh, we should pay for all uh, repairments. Oh. But thanks to this protection, we were somehow uh, able to, to solve all that. But th there were, of course, uh, parts which fall down because we didn't, we only protected like 75 meters. That, that's a stressful environment. Anders, you want to add something to that? Maybe, maybe tell me the secret how you've measured the heat release rate. Yes, if we start with that, about the heat risk rate, which was the main challenge and what we have learned a lot of from uh, also after that, uh, is that we measured from the consumption of uh, oxygen in the same way as mm -hmm. you do in regular fire calorimetry. We made the entire tunnel into a cal large calorimeter 
but we wanted also the the smoke uh, fire gases to be well mixed so that therefore we put this uh, what we call measurement station like very close to the one of the exits uh, 450 meters of the fire and there we had a large station of temperature measurements uh, oxygen and carbon monoxide carbon dioxide measurements and uh, yeah, measured in a, in a similar way as we do in a fire laboratory, but used, as I said, the tunnel tube as a large calorimeter. So, so far away from the from the fire, you were measuring the velocity, oxygen concentration, and from that you were, by oxygen depletion, you were um, estimating the, the heat release rate, the oxygen consumption. Perfect. So it's, it's convenient the tunnels are <laughs> one directional uh, pipes, and uh, if it's in a rock, it's quite uh, tight. That definitely helps. And uh, how did you handle the upstream? Because uh, you probably have not known that. Uh, well, Hoiko mentioned that you did scale research, but you could have expected some backlayering, maybe. Or you were perfectly sure that there will be no backlayering. There will be only one directional movement of air, because that would kind of make the diff- measurements quite difficult to to, to get if, if you had some smoke going front upstream. Now, our aim was to, to not have uh, backlayering. Of course, we studied part for the, as I said, we, fire and rescue services and their uh, possibilities to extinguish fire was one part of the research. So we, we had temperature measurements upstream to see if we had uh, any backlayering. But we our aim was to have in the, the order of three meters per second ventilation in, in the tunnel. And we had to help uh, to get two large fans, uh, one at the entrance and one inside the tunnel to two ranges. But what we learned was that uh, the setup itself and the fire, when it got so big, was a big resistance. Uh, so uh-huh. in reality, we ended up with a little bit more than two meters per second. And uh, therefore, we also had quite significant backlayering during these tests, especially the first one, which was the last Largest one. The largest, yeah. I think it was a little bit of a surprise, uh, what I recall, that uh, we had this uh, huge resistance, both as Anders mentioned, the, the fire, but also we had beyond the, the fire, there was a downhill. Uh, I think the, the slope was somewhere between 1% to 3% or something like that. And that downhill created a buoyancy resistance to the, to the, the fans. So the fans suddenly started to sound a little bit different. <laughs> and we noticed our, <laughs> our uh, velocity measurement are going down. And then, uh, then suddenly in the middle of everything, there was, uh, you know, the, 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 we, at 130 megawatts or something, we started to see some kind of pulsations. That was a surprise. We didn't know that. And uh, I mean, there was a lot of things happening there. And I, I recall once, uh, I think it was in the first test, I went into the portal on the upstream side because we had no smoke there. And I, I wanted to see, can I see something? Because nobody was in the tunnel, of course. We mm-hmm. had all cameras yeah. and, and all the measurements. Nobody was in there. And I, I didn't see so much uh, of the fire. But when I was coming out of it, there, there's a filming sequence of me coming out and I see so very, I, I'm like grabbing my head with my hands and, and I, I, I'm totally devastated because I started to feel these pulsations, you know. What, what's this? 
I felt, are we losing the control of the fires? Uh, what's happening? And uh, I recall this so well. And um, they, they, they really, there were, were definitely some surprises. So tell me more about these pulsations. I, I've seen something like that when we were doing hot smoke tests in the Warsaw Metro. And it was kind of, kind of hilarious and kind of stressful because uh, we were commissioning a new metro line that was crossing with existing uh, metro line that was in operation. And there was like literally one tunnel that was joining them together. And we were doing hot smoke tests in that tunnel. And we've seen this, this like pulsation movement, like every few seconds, the smoke would move back five meters, front seven meters. It was moving towards the existing operating metro stations. So we were really stressed if it will enter. I, I guess uh, it's uh, hydraulically, it would be similar experience to yours, but yours is probably of different physical origin. So uh, what was this pulsating movement? Maybe I can answer that because that was quite large part of my PhD studies okay. when we realized that it was not just ordinary fire pulsations that you can see from uh, liquid fires or because of underventilation. We also can see uh, the fire breathing to get air, which were sort of a starting point. But then we realized that, that the whole tube acted like some resonance cylinder in the same way as, as uh, an organ pipe for example, that you study mm. in the physics. And uh, I started to look more in detail into this and uh, realized that this has been studied before and was called something like uh, thermoacoustic instabilities. Uh, and even earlier, they talked about something called a singing flame, where, where you had to get a sound from, from a, a pipe where you had a heating source. So what it is, is that you have, you have the combination of a heating source of some kind that can give energy to a flow. So you need to have a flow. Uh, and then it's also related to where you put this energy source. If it's sort of giving energy to, to uh, the node at that point, or if you, there is sort of working against that acoustic node in, in a certain point. So it's very relevant also where you place this fire. And when we started to, to know this, we could also calculate and see that the frequencies of these pulsations was very accurate in accordance to some of these nodes, and they interacted to give some combined nodes as well. So that was uh, very fascinating. We don't know how, how important this is for, for safety, uh, but I think uh, it's very interesting for explanation scientifically, because we have seen it, as you said, also in other cases, these pulsations where we can also have related the, the fire to having tubes that was shorter, which gave us another type of frequencies. So it's very interesting. Anders, if I'm not wrong, you're some sort of music, musician, right? Or yes. you, you have some music? I think uh, <laughs> I'd like to say, <laughs> yes. He's, he's famous for singing in ISTSS conferences, yes. <laughs> it must have been a musician that went into the tunnel to discover um, thermoacoustic phenomena and, uh, and the scientist who, who did mass uh, commodity tests to see commodity on wheels, uh, to, to plan a commodity experiment in Zala. What uh, fire science is a world of, um, of lucky accidents that puts the perfect people in the perfect place in the perfect time. I'm very glad this, uh, all of this came together in Runohammer. So how long did it take? Like, how, how long did it take you to prep the research? How long did it take you to do the burns, to take, process the data? Was it a very long program? It was a long program. And uh, of course, Höker started 
early in the planning and having the ideas of what to do. And he mentioned also these pre-tests we did in our laboratory. But then a lot of the work was practical uh, because this was a abandoned tunnel with literally nothing in it to, to assist us for performing fire tests. So we had to arrange electricity, the lighting, uh, somewhere to clean up. Uh, and mm. we used uh, like a waterfall for cleaning up. Uh, but we have arranged toilets and some work shed to be somewhere between the tests. Uh, the protection, uh, of course, took a lot of time, as Höcker said. But then we also had to arrange machines to, to have something to and tractors to move all the, these commodities that we were using for the tests and build up. There was a new setup for each test uh, with steel frames, uh, a floor for, for this uh, palace to be on. Of course, all the measurements to be arranged. So the, a lot of planning and the renting things uh, was done before, but then in the tunnel itself, after the protection had been sort of started, we were there for uh, like two months in, in the Rinama test, starting with sort of digging graves for, for, for the old channels, for, for, for the cables to be protected, uh, the Gerko making the frames for the Promax board to Tech board to be mounted. So they were doing their job. And in the same time, we were preparing the measurements and all the cable drawings with these long distances and also keeping track, of course, of what cables go goes to, what measurements and all that. All that is more difficult when it's so long distances. Mm. And one one very <laughs> fun practical thing is there was no lighting in, in the tunnel. So uh, we had to arrange also lighting where we were at, at this site where the testing site but there were no other lightning in the tunnel so we had to have like headlamps uh, and we had to arrange bicycles of course of the distances uh, between our workshed and the fire site uh, so we had to have these headlights given some kind of light where we worked but it was a very interesting phenomena when we came from the very, very light outside and take the bicycle inside the very dark tunnel even to have the headlight it was for a moment before the eyes adjusted, <laughs> it was completely darkness. But then, yeah. And then we had these sort of small lights to see that it was uh, safe. So with all of those practical, sometimes funny things, but also sometimes very difficult thing, practical things to really arrange to make it work. And and how long it took between the experiments? Uh, you said two months, but two months was for all experiments? or Yeah, so it's approximately were... one month for just arranging things. And then it was a month for the test and approximately one week between each oh, uh, test. Th th that's very, very quick. And and how many people were involved for around? Uh, in total, I think maybe around 20, uh, building up the, the protection, uh, all the practical arrangement with measurement. And uh, also Hoke mentioned that we have three different scientific organizations also doing different types of measurements. And uh, we all had... Uh, number of, of people at the site. I'm cheating because I have the conference proceedings <laughs> in front of me and I, I found the SP Hood tests results uh, that you've mentioned, Hoikyo, and I see that the predicted heat release rate uh, for pallets was 186 and in your experiment it was like 200 something. I, let 200, me check 202. <laughs> yeah, uh, you remember that, good. Uh, for mattresses, the predicted was 167, and that's very remarkably close to the outcome. And the cops also, you predicted 79, and it was also in this range. Uh, I'm fascinated because it's uh, 
the, the laboratory tests are in free burn situation. And in the Runehammer, you've uh, not only had a tunnel, but you had this protective uh, enclosure. It was very close to the fire. So I would assume the effects of like heat re-radiation and everything around surrounding that would be uh, massively changing that, that size of the fire compared to a free burn. But, but it seems you, you did a very good estimation by just multiplying it. How would you explain that? Just the oxygen diffusion in the source? Well, I explain it with uh, luck comes with skills. I mean, <laughs> it, it was uh, really, I always remember that we felt this need to do this in, in our fire laboratory. And, and I knew from experience uh, in adding up, sum up, you know, knowing mm-hmm. uh, the, the rate of, uh, you know, spread, you can't uh, get this very close. And, and that was really... We, we were quite convinced that we would get these uh, high heat release rates. But at the same time, we, we, I think we were more surprised about the temperatures. We never expected okay. uh, 1,350 degrees, uh, the RWS curve. We more were in the range of 1,200 degrees and uh, hydrocarbon fires like that. Because we had seen this in our model scale test and in, in, in fire tests that we have usually 1,000 to 1,200 degrees. But mm-hmm. in, in retrospective, we know uh, that after doing calculation, modeling and so on, that this was really not surprising. You know, the, the thing is that we had a very good fire protection of ports who also happens to be quite insulating and that mm. uh, affects the, the development, of mm. course. But also we had a, the ventilation, of course, create uh, this situation, which we didn't have in our fire lab. But we know the spread between the piles is really governed by the exposed way of wind into the fire lot. But uh, we had, in our test, we had a tarpaulin as a protection initially, but that burned away quite quickly. So we mm-hmm. had like a stream directly into the goods. So so we, we were quite convinced that uh, how it will spread. But the uh, temperature definitely were a surprise here. I'm asking uh, this for, for a reason. I, I'm wondering to what extent someone can extrapolate these fire dynamics into modern tunnels. The tunnels that I'm designing today, you know, they have three lanes, they have emergency lane, they have two meters of, of pedestrian walkways on the sides, they are six meter tall, they end up having like 120 square meter cross section even. Here you had a tunnel with a cross section of 30 something uh, when uh, you built the protective enclosure. Do, do you think the size of the fire could grow to the same scale in a much larger tunnel where the, all these feedbacks would be lesser? With the same ventilation condition and the same arrangement around the commodity, like it was really a direct mm. blow at the, the mm. since the tarpaulin uh, plastics uh, disappeared soon. We have done tests later in with a steel plate in front of the, the goose and, and that slowed definitely down the fire growth rate. But the maximum heat release rate, because it's dominated by the surface area of uh, how large areas involved, and we know that the heat release rate per uh, unit area is quite constant in most cases, even if it's blowing at it. That, uh, so, so 
The fire growth rate definitely is influenced by the rains of in in that uh, high ventilated situation. If you if you lower the the ventilation rate, of course, you will get slower heat release rate. But I think it would it more controlled by the the type of uh, how you arrange the commodity. And, and usually in trucks, you have a cabin in front or you have some kind of uh, doors at the backside. All these things affect. So these Runama tests really showed some kind of uh, what you can expect uh, in the worst case. It was like, uh, you know, as you said, uh, it was only 30 square meter in, in fireplace. We had this uh, protection. Uh, we have done tests later without this type of protection, but with uh, with spray concrete, and, and we don't get that high as we got in, in the Runama test in 2003. Uh-huh. So, so definitely there are parameters affecting the fire dynamics. So, so this is pretty much the... I, I like how you positioned it. This is this seems like a worst-case scenario. And that, that was w- w- what you were seeking, because uh, in Talos, I guess we should be prepared for pretty bad scenarios. Also, uh, w- one more question to the heat release rates. You've also mentioned that the growth was linear. Yes. And that, that was quite interesting to me. I'm, I'm, I'm living in the world where the fires grow in a quadratic manner. So w- was that something that surprised you that it was linear or? or? In the reality, not because we had seen that in, in our lab test. It was also, uh-huh. so it's, okay. it's more related to the, the, how the goods is piled. So again, it's a, it's a fuel property more than, uh, the, the tunnel setting property, okay? I, I would say it's more of the type of fuel you're using. And of course, wind mm. uh, affects this. It's a wind-dated fire spread. And back to temperature. So you've mentioned you, you've seen this uh, massive uh, 1300s uh, range uh, temperatures that actually match the, the curves everyone in the fire testing industry hates because it's it's challenging. If we, we have accomplished uh, self-melting of one of the furnaces when we are attempting one of these uh, tests for these massive temperatures. Was it only in the biggest fire or, or it was consistently in this, in this range, uh, in the smaller fires too? Well, it was the highest temperature was, was in, in the first uh, test. And that's where we also realized that these high temperatures were actually possible. So it's, it was uh, relating to, to the type of test that was uh, performed, but we reached high temperatures in, in uh, most of the tests. But but test number one was the extreme case. Uh, well, why did you choose to make the biggest fire the first? Like, if you, if it collapses, you have the best results anyway, or uh, I mean, that's that's like risky. I, I can answer that because uh, yeah. we had a plan, and we actually we were wanted to do a little bit smaller tests in the beginning, and then you know have uh, some kind of uh, final test with the, the, the largest one. We knew that this was the toughest one. But in discussion with uh, the partners, we came to this conclusion that we should, when we have the best protection, we should do the, the largest fire. So it was mm. a more re- practical reason. Mm. And in retrospective, it was a totally correct decision because it was a huge uh, stress to the, the protection system, but it managed to, to keep it uh, intact. Mm. So that was a good decision. Challenging, very brave decision. Let's move to the impact of the program. I assume you've achieved your goals. You found your heat release numbers. So w- w- how, how happy were you with the outcomes of this, of this research? And, and do you feel it accomplished what was set in front of it? 
We were very happy. Of course, it was sort of overwhelming. Already during the, the test series, uh, relating both how to handle these big fires, but also the, the results that were high, both in temperatures and heat rates, and also that we have sort of reached what we thought. And of course, realized that, that this is very important for the, the tunnel fire science and uh, society. And that's also, of course, also why we had this conference and also the result of the conference and the, the interest from, from many organizations. And then, of course, how to use this Petri's data. And that Heike can tell more about being a part of different standardization organizations and how these numbers were discussed afterwards. How, how uh, should they relate to different types of uh, scenarios or situations and all that. For myself, of course, being in the middle of a PhD studies, that was important thing. Well, to, and this, I was very lucky to partner up with Heike in this and getting five papers out of these only four experiments. So that was uh, very good and very interesting and very, very focused work, so to say. What a PhD topic to have. Heike, uh, can you tell me more about how, how the data was uh, disseminated in the standardization committees and what impact on the, the industry it, it made? So, somehow, of course, p people had started to realize uh, uh, 20, 30 megawatts is quite low in relation to what we see in, in, in incidents involving ordinary hazardous goods. I became a part of the NFPA 502 committee in 2009. When I came into committee, the RWS curve was already there. So, so I, I assume it was somehow related to our test that uh, made it uh, possible to, to somehow use that type of uh, information. But the uh, two, 100 megawatt fire that came during my process in the, in the NFPA committee, I think uh, it was in, or it maybe was already there, but uh, that definitely, uh, it was 20 to 30 earlier. But uh, today we talk about 100 megawatts uh, for, for trucks and even uh, and two, 300 for, for petrol tanks and so on. So it raised the level of uh, the design fires, but uh, it's also started in combination with the incidents uh, to use mm -hmm. a fixed fire fighting system. And I think these tests really somehow proved something, but the incident also proved something. The, uh, the Eureka test in 1993 also had showed us the way. So we needed to do something. And, and in, within the PRC, uh, there is, of course, also these numbers. Uh, you can see people are not willing to go up to 200 megawatt, but 100 megawatt is some kind of consensus. Uh, in the Runama test, we only tested 3 to 11 tons uh, and, and trucks, trailers, uh, HCVs, they, they can carry much higher loads than that. So, and this is only one vehicle. We, we were interested in, mm -hmm. in the fire spread also. And, and we really succeeded to show that vehicles about 90 meters away downstream, they could uh, start to burn. Even we had a target uh, only 15 meters because we, we, we thought in the beginning, this is only for vehicles close to each other. But we really were able to show that these fires, they can jump like uh, 50, 100 meters easily. 
and, and uh, that's mm. something what this has shown. But in a standard standardization organization, I would say what's this uh, a, a number here is 100 megawatt, and that that's, was raised from 20 to 30, and, and just by that, uh, I think we succeeded to to have impact, and also the impact on the on the fixed firefighting uh, industry yeah. and questions. That's that was my follow up question because in the conference paper there are by Alan Brinson on on the sprinklers. There are some early ideas about use of uh, water mist in, in in tunnel settings. So I guess once you had the proof that the fires can be this massive, that the temperatures can be this high, this also like opens the, the way for active fire protection to show how successful it can be. And I guess many research further followed, uh, you know, about the research in, in Spain done with, with different suppression systems. Can you just comment that? Yeah, I know. I was involved in, in uh, t- it was 2007, in a series with uh, water mist uh, testing. And, 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 the, and the driving industry was really the water mist manufacturer, not, not the ordinary sprinkler uh-huh. okay. manufacturer. They have come into this later. But uh, the, the water mist industry was really uh, more and realized the need for, for cooling down because the water mist is very effective in cooling down the temperatures and they saw it very early the the possibilities here and i think partly due to the runama test but of course partly due to what they saw in reality i mean mm. <laughs> these huge fires we can't have it like that but somehow you need confirmation and runahammer has played a role in that it was confirming something what people maybe have thought or knew if someone gave you today opportunity to repeat that uh would you do it? And, and what would be your number one research question today if you had the chance? If I give you half million euros in the tunnel and, and uh, support from Promat? <laughs> yeah, that is a good question. I, I mean, uh, there are, of course, always need for more full-scale tests. And we somehow, these tests in, in 2003 somehow proved for us and, and others that ordinary hazardous material can uh, make a... A singing fires in Runehammer, and, and <laughs> that, that's quite interesting. But uh, anyway, uh, I always said that I, my dream is to uh, run a petrol tank fire in a tunnel. I mean, we saw in mm-hmm. uh, Norway 2015 that actually occurred such fire. Doing that type of fire in, in a tunnel is, of course, maybe getting too late because we have electrical vehicles and things like that. But I, I think somehow doing uh, heavy good vehicles with ordinary or with uh, like batteries or what, I mean, all this alternative. With the hazards. I think there is a time to do something there. The future will show what what is the most interesting. Because of course, we have a lot of debate on still on critical velocity and backlayering things like that. Uh, but most of the research today is done in uh, model scale tests. So somehow we need to calibrate again uh, the all this model scale you know research which has been done to more full scale testing. So so I see maybe we don't have to look for the biggest fires, but Maybe we have to look for well-defined fires, and, and we have to go into the new alternative fuel, uh, you know, frame for the future. So, thank you very much. I, I must say, I, I hate the modern science with these uh, tiny model-scale <laughs> uh, tunnels, figuring out, you know, critical velocity to the third significant digit, and uh, 
innovation coming from this time. We've put the, the fire sources not next to each other, but one behind another. And there's a paper and another paper when they are like separated by three lengths and five lengths. It, it's, it seems more an industry oriented on publishing papers than on tunnel fire safety. Unfortunately, that, that's, that's my view on the modern fire research. This is why, uh, Research projects like uh, one or we were discussing today feel like, you know, some, someone opens a window in a room and then lets all the fresh air in. This is the exact type of research that, that fire science needs to truly advance, not just, uh, you know, have impact factors and citations. And that's, uh, that's what I really appreciate from your program. I think, uh, concerning the, how to proceed, and, and I, I review a lot of uh, these uh, journal papers and I know exactly what you're talking about. But we have a lot of experience of uh, model scaling, but uh, we need to do this together with full-scale testing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I always say you learn by model scaling, but you have to confirm by full scaling. But, uh, you know, we have these uh, conferences which originate from the uh, tests in Runehammer. Uh, we had this conference, yep. as Anders has mentioned, in 2003. And then we started uh, this ISTSS, International Symposium on Tunnel uh, Safety. And uh, we have, I think, at 10 in, in April, uh, we will have in Stavanger. Uh, mm. the 10th ISTSS and that's also a product of these t uh, fire tests really so so it has mm. given both us and hopefully the research community something and, and hopefully ISTSS is a conference where we try to focus on science also and also on practical uh, situations and then this year is very conveniently organized together with fires in vehicles uh, five conference they're like one next to each other uh, in the same place, I think. So you can, like with one trip, attend both, if I'm not wrong. So, so that's a very interesting opportunity to visit Stavanger and uh, learn about tunnels, vehicles, and uh, all these aspects of safety. Anders, a uh, final question to you. How, how did the, the, this program change you as a young scientist? And what, what was the number one lesson for you as a as a young PhD student given such a toy? <laughs> well, if I answer that question in two ways, it, of course, changed my scientific life uh, completely. Uh, this was a different type. I mean, I've done research before, but uh, both seeing the influence that these results had uh, was uh, very satisfying, but also interest in the results we, we saw also gave other opportunities for Höcker and me to continue the research within the tunnel, building up uh, a platform here that Höcker has been responsible for, very much increasing the, the research within tunnel and underground facilities. And of course, the ISTSS and getting to know so many other peoples in the fire safety society. So, so that was big change in my scientific career, of course, not only getting the PhD mm. degrees from it. So that, so that mm. is one side. The other lessons learned is, of course, that these large-scale tests take a lot of effort, uh, costs, uh, a lot of planning. There are many things that, that can go, go wrong uh, or at least needs to be changed. But with uh, a lot of planning and uh, use of previous experience, you can perform these tests uh, in, in a good way that they are very useful. Uh, and to sum up that, sometimes we really need these 
as also Hoke mentioned, these large scale tests because they give much so much extra than then modeling or, or modern scale can can do for one thing to convince other people, but also to to be used for for modeling validation later and we actually see what 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 it is when we put on fire real large scale test. Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you very much for coming to the podcast. It was fantastic to learn firsthand uh, from you about Runa Hammer tests. And uh, I mean, if you're not bored with it, I wish you continue talking about this important research for the next uh, decade or so, at least, uh, because it's still uh, making considerable impact on, on the fire science. Finally, we would like to thank our fantastic colleagues, especially our technicians who made a, a great job during this test, and also to our manager, Ulf Ekström and Margaret McEnany, who have played a major role in, in, in making this possible. And uh, also, of course, we want to thank to our Swedish financiers as well as our partners, TNO and Sintef, and at least not the uh, Aptan project who made this possible. And at the end, I would say the uh, work from uh, the uh, Promat International and uh, Gerco, as well as uh, the fire ventilator BIC in Germany, was, uh, was necessary to make this possible. Thanks again, and see you around. And that's it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Runa Hammer, these experiments have really changed the tunnel fire science, and they still make an impact today. I recall, I think a year ago, we were publishing a paper with a student from Spain, Diego, and we were investigating 1D, 3D coupled modeling, and we used Runa Hammer as our case study for, for that because it's so well described, so well measured, the data is really well available. So why, why not using that as probably the best experiment we have? So even though it happened 20 years ago, still today, it is a very, very useful piece of research. And it was huge fun to interview the creators of that. I mean, you can learn all about the science behind these experiments from the papers, but understand how they felt, what made them do it, what were the challenges, what, where they had to push a little more. All of these fun things uh, is, is what I try to deliver through these episodes of Fire Science Show. So I really hope you've enjoyed that. I know that experiments that change fire science are one of the most liked parts of the Fire Science Show. So I'm going to produce more of them. If you have a good idea about an experiment that has changed the fire science, please send it towards me and I'll try to organize the discussion with the creators or people knowledgeable about that uh, background of that experiment. So thank you for listening and. Uh, See you again next Wednesday. Thank you. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.